Our scripture reading this morning comes from uh, two places, John chapter 8, verse 12, and John chapter 9, verses 1 through 5. I'll read for us, and you can follow along on the screen. When Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And John chapter 9, as he, Jesus, went along, he saw a man blind from birth, His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Amen. Thanks, Eric, and good morning, everyone. Welcome this morning to Bethany. I'm very excited for what God has to say to us through this seemingly simple text, and trust that you'll join me in prayer now as we open our hearts to hear how Christ might speak hope to us uh, through this very simple declaration, I'm the light of the world. So please join me in prayer. Father, we'd like to thank you that you were granted the privilege of gathering within these walls this morning to listen for your voice, and we both trust and pray and ask that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher and that we would be empowered this morning to leave here as people committed to the pursuit of light, knowing that as we pursue light, we receive from you all that you are and we are empowered then to be people of hope in the midst of all that we see unfolding around us. May this be our own story, a story of ongoing transformation. We pray in the name of Christ who is our hope. Amen. Some years ago, I was... uh, uh, car camping in the North Cascades, and climbers do that a lot, where they, we don't go necessarily into a climbing campsite. We camp right on the road before hiking in the morning to the base of a nice climb or something like that. And uh, so uh, some friends and I, we were, we were camping up by Liberty Bell. If, do you know it on Highway 20? How many know the North Cascades Highway? Raise your hands in here. It's just a beautiful part of the world, and so we're up high, and we, and we just parked our cars and pulled our sleeping bags out and put them on the ground in the parking lot, which is kind of fun. Except, uh, as soon as it was deeply dark, lots of mice came out. Hundreds of mice came out. And uh, the previous youth pastor here, who was in the earlier service, Ryan Kyler, was camping with me. And he's afraid of mice. (laughs) And so it was kind of funny. We didn't sleep much. But it was kind of funny because these mice, like, you'll, be, you'll try and be asleep, but they'll literally start crawling all over your sleeping bag. They'll just, they'll just crawl all over the place. They'll crawl up near your face, you know, and there's just mice, there's just mice everywhere. So uh, they'll stay out all night, you know, and you make a little bit of motion, fine, they'll scurry away, but as soon as you're still, which is called sleep, <laughs> they'll come back and then they'll wake you up ongoing for four hours or however long it was. Until, so in such a setting, you're, you're eager for the light to come, right? Like you're just waiting because you know as soon as the light comes, the mice will go away. And what I'm saying to you in this is there's a kind of primal urge that all of us have for safety, for security, for predictability. And that urge for safe, security, predictability is all wrapped up in our longing for light. Way back in the day, before uh, there was agriculture, when we were hunter-gatherers, when the fire goes out, the wild animals approach. And so there's always, always intended to be light. We have this primal urge for light. Now, what does this have to do 
with us in urban Seattle? Well, quite a bit, actually, because the darkness of which Jesus speaks in this text isn't literal. If anything, we suffer collectively from light pollution. In other words, too much light, but that's a different story for a different day. Uh, The darkness of our moment, though not literal, is moral, is spiritual. We live in what uh, secular commentators are now calling a post-truth world, where we don't know what to believe anymore. And in such a setting, there are many things that, quote-unquote, go bump in the night, right? In other words, we're afraid of things. We're, We're afraid of terror. We're afraid of economic downturns. We're afraid of uh, changes in tax structure, changes in healthcare structure. We're afraid of change. We're afraid of the other. Uh, there's, there's, there is in our setting of elevated individualism a desperate byproduct of loneliness that is not only true for singles, but perhaps worse is also true for married couples who feel stuck in a marriage that isn't working where there's no intimacy. So there's fear, 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 fear. And this fear is wrapped up in this notion of darkness. The other things that go bump in the night, so to speak, are our secret destructive behaviors. Uh, And these create shame, fear, sense of hiding, sense of duplicity, sense of hypocrisy, anxiety that will get discovered. All of this is wrapped up in this this simple phrase, darkness, right? And, And I would suggest that most of us in the room, though I don't know this, but I would suggest that most of, the, most of us in the room have had out-of-body experiences. And what I mean by an out-of-body experience isn't literal, but there are moments when we walk into darkness and we behave as people of darkness. We do. Uh, we say things to our spouses that we would regret. We do things that we later regret. Uh, and, and then we look, when we step back into the light, we look back at who we are and we're like this. That I can't believe that was me. Has anyone ever had such an experience? Can we just share? You don't have to share the experience, but if you've had it, out of body, right? And you look back and you say, I can't believe I did that. I can't believe I said that. I can't believe I behaved that way. That, that's, that's who you are in the darkness. You need to know that. And so then because we have this capacity for darkness in us, One of the prevailing themes of the gospel is this. We're called to move out of that darkness into the light. And so I'm just going to share with you at the outset here by way of setting a context for our consideration of Scripture this morning that the entire, like the whole theme of the Bible is wrapped up in what, there's many threads in the Bible. You can trace them through. One of the main threads of the Bible is this darkness and light thread. In other words, it runs through all of Scripture. In the beginning, right, before uh, Genesis 1.1, in the very beginning, uh, God said, let there be light, so that before the beginning, there was only what? Darkness. And that's significant because it tells us that darkness, uh, when, when, when darkness prevails, darkness pre- uh, prevents and prevents life. Like you need light for life. So if it's all darkness, there's no life. And so God speaks and light begins and light John chapter 1 becomes the source of life. Light becomes the source of life. So we see it in Genesis, Genesis, and all through the Bible, we see both cosmologically and physically a rhythm of darkness and light. And in our part of the world, physically, the season of darkness and light is dramatic in its shift and, and change, right? And for some of you who hate Seattle, it's what you hate about Seattle. For we who love it, it is one of the things that we love. I love, 
I love that it's dark at 2.30 in the afternoon in November, right? And, that, and, and you're looking and you're like this, man alive, it's dark already? Yes! You know what that means? More coffee, writing time, indoor time, time with family. I, lo I love it. And then I love too this time of year that I can wake up this morning, <laughs> so beautiful before the sun came up. I go out, not with a fancy camera, but with my phone at least, and take pictures of new blossoms with frost on them and recognize that the season is changing. Light is coming. Light is coming. And I'm looking forward to those days when it's going to be 9 p.m. And I'll be driving back into the mountains late at night and the sky will still be light and there'll be snow on the peaks and the peaks will be turning pink because the sun is setting behind me and the days are longer. The light prevails and then darkness and then light. This is the world in which we live. Not only physically, but yes, spiritually. There are days that we walk in darkness. There are, there are seasons of darkness in people's lives. And there are cultural seasons of darkness. So we're in a season, in this present era in history, where there's a rhythm of darkness and light, physically, spiritually, collectively, personally, emotionally, in every way. <laughs> and we're looking forward to the age, Revelation 22, 5, when there will no longer be any night, and it says there, quoting, they will not have need of the light of a lamp or the light of the sun because the Lord God will illumine them forever and ever. We don't know what that means. We don't know how poetic it is, how literal it is. It doesn't matter. The point is, light is coming in a way that's life-giving and will prevail eternally. So, began with darkness, now a season of darkness and light, heading toward a season of light. So then, then the question becomes, okay, if we're in a season of darkness and light, how do we live in this season? And what do these elements represent? And what I want you to see here is that darkness represents a loss of capacity to find one's way in life. Because the thing to see is without light, you don't have any reference points. And if you don't have any reference points, you don't have a clear sense of direction. And, and, and without a clear sense of direction, you don't know where to turn. You don't know where to turn vocationally. You don't know where to turn morally. You don't know how to fix a broken relationship. You don't know what to do with your life. You don't know what to do with your money. You don't know what to do with your time. And in not knowing what to do, often prevailing forces of darkness will shape you. And you'll be stuck in a life that, to be blunt, you're not pleased with. Even though you've made the choices yourself, it isn't working. And this is a, a, a sense of darkness that is in our world. And darkness also is representative of hiding. <laughs> if you're on the run, you travel by night, what? Under cover of darkness, quote unquote, as they say. Like, you only travel when it's dark because you won't be discovered. If it's a first date, at least back in the day for me, I always take my date to a dark restaurant because I like it better. I, like, I felt like, they, oh, then she can't see my big nose and my big ears and my ugly face and all that stuff. And so wouldn't it be nice if it was dark all the time so that no one had to look at each other? Yeah. That's my own paranoia, right? And, and so, there's a, but it represents something real. It represents a sense of hiding that comes from a sense that uh, I don't want to be discovered. And so this, this loss of reference point and this sense of hiding leads collectively, when you, when you mix this cocktail of hiding and loss of reference point, there's a stagnation that happens in our lives. And we're stuck. Now, if we look around the room, you might go, these people don't look stuck. 
People, we're most of us employed. Obviously, we're here this morning, we're healthy. What's stuck? And yet, if we're honest, we know that beneath the veil of sufficiency and propriety and wealth and upward mobility and good looks and health and all that we enjoy, we also know that there are, we pastors hear it all the time, life isn't working for me. I'm not living up to my potential. I'm stuck. So this light-darkness paradigm, it's always been present in the world, everywhere, light and darkness. That's why in all worship traditions, I love this, in every worship, Hindu, Buddhism, Islam, and nearly every worship tradition, there are candles. Why is that the case? It's because this light and darkness paradigm prevails in every tradition all around the world, right? And so this brings us then to Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2, where Israel has been floundering. They were called by God to represent justice and hope and mercy and generosity and hospitality and joy. And by virtue of making a string of bad choices, they're now stuck instead in a, in a pattern of darkness. It's bribery. It's oppression. It's fear. It's, it's, it's lust. It's, it's, it's greed. And it's and it's stagnating their collective and individual existence. And into that stagnation, the prophet Isaiah offers a profound word of hope. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2. The people walking in darkness. He's looking ahead. This is what he says. The people walking in darkness, what? Have seen a great light. Not just a light. A great light. A light greater than any light in history. Something that will change the course of our personal and collective lives forever. And then that prophecy hinted at in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2, is articulated in its full fulfillment in Isaiah chapter 60, verses 1 through 3. Arise, shine, your light has come. The glory of the Lord has risen upon you. Hear me, because this is the word of the Lord. Wake up. It's not that bad, people. No matter who's in office, no matter what the economic indicators say, no matter what, what's happening in North Korea or what's happening anywhere in the world, our calling is this, shine. Why? Because your light, your light, it has come. And the glory of the Lord has risen on you and you have a calling to be people of light in a dark world. Get on with it. That's Isaiah, not me. But it is me because I so desperately want us to be people of hope in a world in which hope is in increasingly short supply. So when Jesus comes on the scene, he's coming as the fulfillment of these uh, prophecies made by Isaiah. And as Eric read for us, he self-referentially, he calls himself what? Uh, John 8, 12. I am the light of the world. And he calls himself that at a festival called the Feast of Booths, which was this Jewish celebration remembering Israel's time of wandering the wilderness. And this is one of the festivals that Gentiles were also invited to attend as an act of God calling the people of God to hospitality. So it's here in Jerusalem, where Jews and Gentiles gathered, that Jesus goes to this festival, stands up in the middle of the temple where there are lights that are representative of the coming Messiah, and, and he says, I am the light of the world, right? And so this is where we learn that the light of the world is a person, Christ, and uh, that we are invited, all of us, to let this light come in and transform us so that we may become light. And we're invited to pursue this light for two reasons simply. First, because of the nature of darkness. Second, because of the nature of light. We're, you should be motivated to pursue light 
both because of the nature of darkness and, the, and because of the nature of light. And so we will look first at the nature of darkness, and we'll look at both uh, religious slash institutional darkness, like the darkness of institutional Christianity, and we'll look at personal darkness, both. In other words, why should I pursue the light? Because the darkness is terrible, that's why. Uh, and as I've already said, darkness hides things, Darkness keeps us trapped in, uh, trapped in destructive patterns. If I could use a horticulture uh, metaphor, I need light if I'm going to blossom into my full potential. In other words, what did God have in mind when God created you? You are, Psalm 139, fearfully and wonderfully made. How do you live into your wonderfulness? How do you do that? Well, the only way is to be in the light, right? And the other, you know, simple observation here is that we don't have the light within ourselves, and that's the great human dilemma. We, I, we don't have light. We can't look within for answers. Uh, and the reason that history repeats itself over and over again is because we look within to find answers. We find new answers, different answers, but the, all the answers are predicated on darkness, you see. And so history is cyclical, and patterns of destruction and oppression and abuse, they happen over and over and over again. On the other hand, though we don't have the light within ourselves, we have a longing for the light. That's a very, very good thing. We need to learn to be honest with that longing and lean into our longing for the light. So darkness is the absence of life-giving light, right? And this darkness appears in two forms, religious, institutional darkness, and personal. Let's look at this religious darkness because this is the context in which Jesus speaks his declar uh, declarative statement on the light of the world. Uh, here's what we read. Uh, as, we, as we look at John 7, Jesus declares in John 7, as he goes to the temple for this Feast of Booths, he declares that he's sent from God. And that creates a debate among the Jewish people as to whether he might be the Messiah. And as the debate intensifies, many people are saying, look, he's the Messiah. How do I know? Look at the works he's doing. He's doing amazing things. He's healing people, Right? Look at his teaching. His teaching's amazing. I th we think he's the Messiah, but the people most threatened by the crowd beginning to believe that Jesus was the Messiah were the religious leaders. And, and, and so they then uh, uh, threatened to cast out the people who are calling Jesus Messiah. They're going to cast them out of the flock, so to speak, excommunicate them. The religious leaders then, in verse 32 of chapter 7, they try and seize Jesus to kill him, but he slips away. In John 8, the religious leaders hatch a plot to trap Jesus, and the plot takes the form of a woman caught in adultery. They present him to Jesus, and they say, hey, we caught this woman in the very act of adultery. They're trying to trap him, either into denying the law to protect her or obeying the law and killing her in hopes that whatever he chooses will turn the people against him. And then uh, he, in that chapter, declares himself to be the light of the world, and they say, you can't declare, you can't self-declare that you are the light because someone else needs to testify about your lightness. In other words, you need a witness outside yourself to declare that you're, if you're the light of the world, someone else will say it. And then here's what Jesus says, someone else did. And they say, who? My father. And they say, who is he? God. <laughs> well, the religious leaders weren't very happy with that answer uh, for some reason. And that actually intensifies the debate. So that as the debate intensifies, then Jesus says, listen, to the Pharisees who know their Bible, study their Bible, read their Bible, memorize their Bible, pass on the truth that they've learned to a new generation so the new generation will also know the text, defend the text, revere the text. Jesus says to them, 
you are from below, I am from above. And then Jesus says to the textual experts, seminary grads, right? What does he say? You are of your father, the devil. Who says that? Oh, that's right, Jesus does. So why would he say that? Well, continue on. Look at John 9. Here's a man born blind, and he's healed. And rather than these religious experts rejoicing that he's been healed, they view this act of healing as a threat. And to silence the guy who's healed, they, they uh, excommunicate him. They kick him out, John 9, 34. You read it. So then chapter 10 is this other stuff that we'll look at next week. Jesus about being a gate and a shepherd, all that stuff. But then in John 11, he raises Lazarus from the dead, and that's it, man. As soon as he raises a man from the dead, the religious leaders are convinced collectively, unanimously, Jesus must die. Like, uh, why must he die? Look what he did. <laughs> yeah, isn't it good that people are raised from the dead and healed? Isn't it good that demons are cast out? Isn't it good that blind men now see? Isn't it good that a woman caught in adultery is now you know, forgiven and liberated to live the life for which she was created? Well, good or not, we're going to kill him. Like, why? why? Why do they want to kill him? This is the question on the table. And so what I want you to see at the outset as we ponder that question is this. Being near Bible stuff is not the same thing as being near Jesus. And if you learn nothing else this morning, I hope you'll learn that. In fact, Acts chapter 13, verse 27, I'll just read it for you, is Paul's assessment of people who were near Bible stuff. And so he goes into a synagogue to speak, and when he does, the people there are rejecting his message. And then here's what Paul says, those in Jerusalem and their rulers, listen, recognizing neither Jesus nor the utterances of the prophets which are read every Sabbath, they fulfilled these utterances by condemning Jesus, and though they found no ground for putting him to death, they asked Pilate he be executed. In other words, they fulfilled the prophecies of a suffering Messiah that they read every Sabbath, knowing that they were prophecies about the Messiah. They fulfilled those prophecies themselves by putting Jesus to death. The very text that said Jesus would be executed at the hands of angry, unclean sinners, they became the angry, unclean sinners. Even though they knew their Bibles actually quite well. And by the way, the act of putting Jesus to death when did it happen? The arrest, the trial, in the middle of the night. You know, when mice are running around. And I'm just going to say something very important here. Don't pick on Jewish people over this. No, 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 no. Very important that we take a look in the mirror instead. The Roman Catholic Church and pedophilia, boarding schools for missionary kids with, filled with sexual abuse, anti-Semitism in God's name, slavery in God's name, colonialism in God's name, socialism in God's name, capitalism in God's name. I wonder how many of us are presently hiding something in darkness personally. And so, as I ponder this question, you know, why are the men in John chapter 7 through 11, why are they so threatened by Jesus? There may be many answers, but there's one answer to which all of us might be able to relate, and here's the answer. They like their lives just as they were. They, what did they have, these guys who read their Bibles so often? They had reputation. They had social status. They had a job, a religious job. They had power. They were, quote, the moral majority of their day. 
And as a result, <laughs> they'd link up with anyone else who had power as long as it led to the preservation of their power. That's the truth. And it's, and it's old truth, but it's not dead truth. Happens today. Same way. Linking up with Pilate, who they hated, because Pilate would protect their jobs and their religion. Read, read about the church in Germany in the 30s. Look at our own struggle right now within the evangelical community, whether it's on the left or the right. Look at the, it's the same struggle. Will we have the moral courage to stand for life, or in fear of the consequences of standing for life, will we, will we become complicit with the darkness? Look, the light, the kingdom, the calling that is ours is not of this world. And if it costs us whatever, it, then it costs us. But our calling is to walk into the light, you see. So that, that, that's this kind of institutional darkness. It's real. But I want to move on for just a moment here to personal darkness as well because it's just as important. The other thing we see here in this text the reality of personal darkness, and we won't spend as much time here, and the reason we won't is because the principles are the same. Institutional darkness is nothing other than the collective result of individual darkness. But here's what we see when we come to this notion of individual darkness. We're told in the scriptures that the destructive actions and habits in our lives, <clears throat> and we all have them or have had them or have them right now and don't even know we have them, but, but destructive actions and habits are called in the Scripture deeds of darkness. Read it. It's in Ephesians 5. We'll go there later in the, in the, in the teaching time here. And so th these deeds of darkness uh, uh, create kind of a sense of stuckness in our lives. Promiscuity, body image issues, secret addi addictions, cynicism, withdrawal, fear, shame, laziness, greed, lust, hate, Rage, dark, it's all darkness. Domestic violence, these are flaws in our lives. And they said that we refuse to face them, we tuck them away in a closet. And listen, when that happens, a terrible thing happens. Because you, if you have a known issue of darkness, you tuck it away in a closet, then you have a public self that is, quote-unquote, in the light, and you have a private self that is, quote-unquote, in the dark. And I was just going to say to you, to the extent that any of us in the room have a public self and a private self, the tension of that is, is it sucks the life out of you, it's, and it's unsustainable, right? We're not called to live as two people. So why, why would we do that? Here's why. In John 3.19, after the, you know, maybe most famous passage in the New Testament, God so loved the world that he gave his only son, all that good stuff, all good, all true, all important. But then the text goes on, and it's the words of Jesus. This is the judgment. John 3.19. Take Just take that six and turn it upside down. John 3.19. This is the judgment. Light has come into the world. Men love darkness rather than light. Why are we stuck in darkness? Here's why. We like the darkness. That's why. And so, <clears throat> it's because of this darkness, Ephesians 5.11, 
that the wrath of God comes. We're told that the wrath of God is poured out where there are deeds of darkness. Now, what's kind of cool about God's wrath, if I can say it that way, <laughs> is the wrath, God's wrath is not because God's mad at us. In other words, uh, what is the object of God's wrath? The object of God's wrath is this darkness, you see. It's not you. It's the deeds of darkness. That's the object of God's wrath. How do I know that? Because 1 John chapter 2, verse 1 says this. Uh, look, he, Christ himself, is the propitiation for our sins. Propitiation. What does that word mean? You know, a huge theological word. Here's all it means. Uh, like, when Christ died, right, this is what we learn. At that moment, all of God's wrath that would have someday been poured out on humanity, all of it was directed toward Christ. So the Christ, is, Christ absorbs all God's wrath. So when it says propitiation, uh, another word for propitiation would be the word satisfaction. God's satisfied. God's not angry at you. God's not angry at me. What is God angry at? God is angry at sin. God is angry at darkness, which means what? God is angry at lust and, and, and greed and human trafficking and, and, and addiction and, and, and shame and body image and overeating and undereating and laziness and fear and hate and xenophobia and homophobia. God's mad at all of it. Because that's darkness, you see. And the darkness is, is holding back our calling. So what does God's wrath do? God's wrath is intent, kind of like chemotherapy or proton therapy or immunotherapy or whatever it is, God's wrath is intent on going into your humanity and destroying the darkness so that you can live and walk in the light and be free. And you just look at Scripture and God's judgment. It's always been the same reason. The judgment is intended to lead ultimately to human flourishing. That's why there was a flood. Like we would have destroyed ourselves without the flood. That's why nations rise and fall. That's why the Tower of Babel happened. That's why sin gets exposed. That's why we're called to accountability amongst ourselves, uh, that we need to know somebody well enough to name our stuff and bring it into light so that we can deal with it. All these things are intended to move individuals toward light so that we can flourish and live the life for which we're created. God hates darkness and is intent on destroying it. And so it's a good day when your spouse discovers that you're addicted to pornography. It's a good day. It's a good day when, when uh, finally domestic violence is brought into light. It's a good day when you finally name it. I have a body image issue. I hate my body. It's a good day. Because as long as we continue to hide, we're enslaved by the darkness and we're living two lives. That's not your calling. So let's have a look at the nature of the light. If the darkness is bad news, and I hope I've built a compelling case that it is, I'm convinced, I hope you are. <laughs> then let's talk about the light, and we're going to look at this a little bit quickly. A, the light directs, and then B and C together, the light heals and transforms. So if you're taking notes, the light directs, and then B and C together, the light heals and transforms. The light directs. John 9 is this beautiful um, uh, passage where Jesus heals the man born blind, and uh, so people say, hey, uh, you know, who sinned that this man was born blind? And, and Jesus says, hey, it wasn't this man or that man. You know, uh, it, this happened for God to be glorified. Now, 
let me, let me just show you here um, what the light, why light is important and why this guy ultimately walks in the light instead of staying in darkness. Uh, when I, like when I first got married, my wife and I lived in a little tiny apartment in you know, Fresno, California, and it was hot, and so we had air conditioning. And uh, so I remember being really warm one night and walking into the living room to turn the air conditioning down, so like colder, so that uh, it would get cooler in the house. So I walk in, and I didn't turn any lights on. Well, walking back, I missed the hall. I was totally sober, I, like... It was, uh, but I, like I missed the hall and walked literally into the corner of a wall right here. Boom. And uh, made a big thump in the night, you know, and, and so I come back to bed and, my, and Donna goes, uh, are you okay? I go, I'm sure I'm okay. I just like hit the wall. It was a little embarrassing, but I'm fine. And she says, no, I mean, let's turn the light on, just see. And she turns the light on and there's just blood like all over my pillow and on my face and stuff. And, and we had to go to the emergency room, and I had to get stitches here in my forehead because, I, because of this silly, um, you know, walking the wall event, right? And so if I could replay that, like if you could go back just 10 minutes, we all have these moments, like certainly I would have switched the light on because if you have a light, watch this, when, you, when there's a light, the light says, hey, don't go there. There's a wall there. Hey, don't go there. You'll drive into a ditch right? Hey, don't go there if you're like backcountry skiing. That's a cliff. Don't go there. Or let's make it more personal. Hey, don't waste your life away on social media or an eating disorder or sexual addiction or compulsive shopping so you're carrying a load of debt or stale marriage when you're called to intimacy don't do that. Like, you're called to thriving creativity and life and joy. You're called to be a giver. <laughs> and the thing is, in honesty, we don't see how lost we are or how at risk we are of forfeiting the life for which we're, we're created until we enter the light. As soon as I enter the light, I see it. Until I enter the light, no, I, I'm stuck in darkness. And so if you ever read sometimes 2 Kings uh, uh, chapter 22, verses 6 through 10, you read that Josiah, this little eight-year-old kid, becomes the king. And when he's 16, he says, hey, the temple's a mess, man. Let's go in there and clean it up. Some, some guys go in to clean up the temple, and they find in some, you know, basket or something, like you'd find up here by the prayer team, or, they find the Bible. They find God's Word. And they go, they bring it back to Josiah and say, hey, we don't know what this is, but this is kind of an interesting book, and it hasn't been read for generations. And you read the text. It says, so they started reading, and verse 11, when the king heard the words of the law, he tore his clothes and repented. I didn't know how bad it was until I saw the light. And hear me, nobody wakes up one morning and decides to put God's light in a closet. No, at never. You don't wake up one day and say, that's it, I'm done with God. That doesn't happen. Here's what happens. Always, when the darkness overtakes you, it overtakes you slowly. A little choice here, a little choice there, a little compromise here. It's like sunset to dusk to darkness. You don't even notice it. Little neglects here, little compromises there, and then boom, you're in darkness, but you don't even know because it happened so slowly, you've lost your reference point completely. 
So the light directs, the light exposes, and then finally the light heals and transforms. This man born blind comes to see Jesus, who is light, and he's enabled to see. And the crux passage in the story is at the beginning, Eric read it, hey, who sinned that this man was born blind? And the assumption is that everyone's born whole unless there's a family fail of some sort. And Jesus' answer indicates the reality that darkness is always the opportunity. Listen, darkness is always the opportunity for God to be glorified. Why? Because every life both can and should contain stories of moving from light to darkness. Every life should be a story of moving, excuse me, from darkness to light, right? Every life. That's what you see in the story of John 9. Here's a guy He's obedient to Jesus when Jesus puts mud on his eyes and says, hey, go wash in that pool. And from this, I learn a simple truth. When I respond to the revelation that is light with obedience, when I respond to the revelation that is light with obedience, that's what it means to walk in the light. And this revelation then, that I'm called to walk in the light, it, it requires of me simply two things. I have to be open to receiving from God and then I must respond to what I receive. And receiving from God, you know what? That's there for anybody who wants it. It requires listening, at least for a moment, before acting. It requires asking God in prayer, hey, is this wise, this thing I'm about to do? And response means following the answer. I'm at a crux here. Do I stay or do I go? Do I give or do I keep? Do I serve or do I withdraw? You pray, you listen, you respond. What does that look like? Hey, let me read for you uh, as we come to near the end here out of Ephesians chapter five. Kind of a definitive exhortation to walk in the light offered by the Apostle Paul. I love this passage. It says here, you, verse eight, were formerly darkness. That's all of us in the room, right? You were darkness, but now... This is definitive, it's declarative, not aspirational, reality. But now you, if you're in Christ, you're light in the Lord. Therefore, if you're light, walk as children of the light. Why? Verse 9, the fruit of the light consists in goodness, righteousness, truth. And then verse 11, don't participate in unfruitful deeds of darkness. But instead, listen, Instead, expose them. What does that mean, expose them? It means if I've got something in the closet, I move it out of the closet into the light. I just name it. That's all. That's what it means. I'm exposing. It was in darkness. I'm done hiding this thing, whatever it is. I'm now moving it into the light. And then look at this. It says, um, it's disgraceful even to speak of these things that are living in the closet, things done in secret. But then verse 13, one of the best verses in the Bible, all things become visible when they're exposed by the light. And then the end of this verse, for everything that becomes visible is light, or a better translation, everything that becomes visible, listen, becomes light. Wow. Becomes light. You know what that means? That means that uh, the, 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 the very thing in my life that was stuck away in my closet, that was, that was eating me, destroying me, imprisoning me, creating you know, a dual life and a sense of hypocrisy that was draining me, that thing, when I bring it out of the light, it becomes a redemptive part of my story. Wow. Even my sexual abuse? Yeah. Or your dad's untimely death. Or your adoption. 
or your domestic violence, victim or perpetrator, anything, when it comes into the light. And so the joyous news is a call to respond here, Ephesians 5.14. Wake up. Arise from the dead. Christ will shine on you. You're created for joy, generosity, justice, hope, intimacy, freedom from addiction, freedom from life in the shadows. Are you there? No. Am I there? No. Do I want to be there? Yes. How? I got to piece by piece move stuff out of my closet. And that's how we respond this morning. There's a thing that I want you to write down maybe. May the dark, name a darkness that needs to come out of the closet. May the darkness of, what is it for you or somebody you're praying for? The darkness of sexual addiction, the darkness of greed, the darkness of this body image issue, the darkness of fear. May the darkness of give way to your light of. And then name what you, the, you would like to see instead. May lust give way to purity. May fear give way to boldness. May shame give way to forgiveness. May disengagement give way to service. I'm going to invite you this morning to come and pray that prayer in these prayer books so that we can pray together for one another. Join me in prayer now as we become people of light. Father, um, you've been speaking to me at least this week and especially the last 48 hours about how much lives in the closet. I pray that none of us would rest without regularly moving stuff out of the closet into the light, even in this moment, Father. We know that we're not, you know, instantly created into people of perfection, but that we're called to take steps. Would you give us courage now to name one thing in the darkness and prayerfully bring it out into the light. Thank you that it will become light, part of our redemptive story. We pray this in the name of Christ who is our hope. Amen. Please utilize, if you would, uh, these prayer books to share your testimony of movement as we close in worship together.